Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, the podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics. We're here today with our longtime good friend, Dr. John Marriott, who is a research director of the, at the Center for Christian Thought here at Biola and has been an adjunct faculty member in the, in the philosophy departments, both at the undergrad and graduate level at Biola and at Talbot for some time. He's the author of a brand new book that comes out of his PhD dissertation entitled The Anatomy of Deconversion. Uh, so, John, welcome. We are so delighted to have you with us and are, are very pleased to see your book come out. Um, so, welcome. Thank you. It's uh, a pleasure to be here with uh, both of you guys. I've uh, learned a lot from you, especially you, Scott, over the years. Uh, appreciate working with you and uh, the doors that you've opened for me. And so, if I can um, help you guys out on this podcast by being a guest, it is, it's my pleasure. So, Thanks for having me. Here. John, tell us, first of all, what what motivated you to write this? Because these are, you know, these are some high-profile stories, and you have the, your book is full of these stories of people high high-profile leaders who have given up their faith. But it's also kind of a depressing topic, um, and I'm not, you know, I, I think it probably takes a special person to spend, a, you know, a good bit of his his or her life for the last few years in this subject. And you've dug deeply into this, but why why work on this and why write your book on this? Yeah, that's a good question. And it really comes out of an experience that I had with somebody who had made a real impact in my life and and ended up walking away from the faith. A number of years ago, I tell the story in the book of the um, British triple jump Olympic world record and world champion, Jonathan Edwards, who uh, was a hero of mine because he was a really committed uh, believer. He is uh, kind of like the modern day equivalent of Eric Little, who because of his Christian Commitment had decided that he would miss an Olympics because he was uh, uh, he, he didn't feel like he could compete on a Sunday, and then um, out of the blue he started jumping just these massive distances and uh, shattered the world record uh, a number of times in in one year. And the British press was more impressed with um, the lack of skeletons in his closet and his character than they were with his uh, amazing triple jumping. And so. Um, he had become kind of a hero of mine. I was competing at a Division One uh, athletic in a Division One athletic program, and I was really struggling. I um, wasn't uh, performing up to the standards that I was uh, scholarshiped for. And uh, one day, I was at a uh, we went to a meet at Florida State University, and a friend of mine and the team came out and said, "Hey, you'll never guess who's in the weight room right now." And I said, I, I don't know. And I wasn't really in the mood to, to guess. And he said, Jonathan Edwards is in the weight room wow. right now. And uh, at that moment, I felt like God had providentially arranged the uh, events of the universe for me to meet the one guy who, if I could have talked to about issues of faith and struggling with uh, performance, uh, it would have been Jonathan Edwards. And so here he is uh, just a few yards away. So I went in, waited till he was all done, introduced myself. Uh, tried to convince him that we had a lot of things in common and asked him if he wouldn't mind helping me out with some advice. And And he said, well, how about I take you out for lunch and uh, we can chat about it. So we went out for lunch and he told me that when he was done uh, tr- with his track career, he wanted to be, uh, he wanted to uh, attend Dallas Theological Seminary and do a systematic study of the nation of Israel. We picked up his wife from a Bible study and uh, we went out for lunch, had a great conversation, talked a lot about faith 
And I followed him for the next few years as he went on to win an Olympic gold medal. And it was, uh, uh, it was a really great day for me because I felt as though that uh, I had, uh, you know, that the Lord had heard me and my frustration. Well, you can imagine then uh, a number of years after that, I decided, you know, I know that Jonathan Edwards has been retired and he's one of the most well-known uh, Christians in all of the UK because he's hosting a program that's the longest running program on television called Songs of Praise, which is broadcast every Sunday morning for folks who often are shut-ins and can't make it out to church. And after he retired, he became the host of that. So I looked him up to see if I could find any videos of him online. And uh, the headline that I came across was, world record triple jumper takes leap out of faith. Oh, wow. And I Ouch. felt as though that uh, someone had punched me in the stomach and I could not reconcile how someone who mm. was so committed to his faith and so genuine and so humble and so well-grounded theologically um, could walk away from his faith and say things like, it really doesn't seem like there's any good rational reasons to believe in God, and I'm happier now than I've ever been. Wow. And so I had to get to the bottom mm. of how that could happen, and I discovered that there that that he's just the tip of the iceberg. There are easily ten thousand narratives online of people who have gone down the same road, and and I wanted to know why that happens and and what the process looked like. John, when did that happen? When was that story? Uh, that was 1995. He okay. left the faith in, I think, around 2007, maybe. Yeah, 2007. The reason I ask is I, I get asked a ton by people, why are we hearing so many deconversion stories today? And I wrestle with, on one side, the reality that the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, have increased, and there's greater there's, – there's a lack of religiosity with Gen Z and younger generations – but we're hearing these increased stories. How much of it is that we're just hearing these stories and the narrative is being told more and there's a push today for everybody to share their story and a platform to do so versus there really being more deconversion stories than there were in the past? Yeah, that's a fair question and it's really hard to to know for sure because what we do have now, as as we're all aware of, is we have this platform that allows a thousand atheist apologists to bloom and to share stories of their deconversion on social media and set up their own web pages. And where in the past there was very little social very little opportunity for, for people to, to do that. And, and atheists uh, really are a small number of the, of the population, but uh, the internet allows them to congregate and to, in a sense, evangelize. And, and because of that, I do think that there are, are more folks who are uh, outright rejecting the faith that perhaps at some point down the road, had they never experienced or been exposed to some of the counter ideas that they've encountered online, they may have just, um, just walked away from gradually anyway, where it wouldn't have become significant in their life, and they may have become a nun. But... Um, the research does seem to show at least over the last 10 to 15 years that the number of people who once identified as a follower of Jesus, and, and of course that needs to be qualified, um, are, are leaving the faith. So for example, as far back as 2009, the Pew Research Center on uh, Religion and Public Life said that, that people are leaving Christianity or at least we're leaving religion at five to six times what the historic rate has been. Wow. Um, Pew Research has also said that for every one person who becomes a Christian, uh, four people 
are leaving Christianity. And, and the, 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 the stat that is most recent that I just came across from uh, the Pine Tops Foundation, which perhaps you're familiar with, they put out a, they're a Christian organization who is concerned about um, evangelizing and the growth of the church. And they conducted a study where they did an aggregate of a number of the studies that have come out over the past several years. And this has just come out recently, and, and this is what they have to say. The bottom line is the next 30 years will represent the largest missions opportunity in the history of America. It is the largest and fastest numerical shift in religious affiliation in the history of the country. Even in the most optimistic scenarios, Christian affiliation in the U.S. shrinks dramatically, and our base case of over 1 million youth, at least nominally in the church today, will choose to leave each year for the next three decades. Gosh. 35 million youth raised in families that call themselves Christians will say that they are no longer Christians by 2050. We believe that our best case likely underestimates the problem. And while it's hard to find clear data, as far as we can tell, this is the single largest generational loss of souls in the history of people who were at least nominally raised in the Christian church and no longer call themselves followers of Jesus. Wow. Wow. Now I guess it's clear why you wrote the book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, John, there, there are no, I'm sure there, there are a number of factors that go into somebody deconverting. Uh, there are intellectual issues. There are you know, emotional, psychological issues. Um, how, what, what are the various factors that contribute to someone deconverting? And if you had to weight them in terms of importance, what would be the top two or three on that list? Yeah, the, that's a, the the challenge with that question is is that uh, as we know, I mean, if you were to ask the question of why do people convert to Christianity, the answer would be really varied. And and you might ask them, why did you convert? And they might say, well, you know, because I was convinced it's true. And and then you might say, but why are you convinced that it's true? And then they might give you reasons. But we know that there are all there are a lot of other layers that go on uh, when someone commits to Christ that are outside of our, our conscious awareness. And I think that happens a lot when it comes to why people leave the faith. Um, the, the answer, if you were to ask the, 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 those folks who have left, why did you leave, would always be the following. And that is that we just don't find that it's true anymore. We don't believe that it's true. And if you were to ask them why that's the case, they would give you uh, two broad categories that would... Um, that would they would offer as explanations. And the first would be that they would say that there are intellectual reasons that they can no longer believe in the truth of Christianity or even in the existence of God. And that would be problems with the Bible, contradictions between the Bible and science, uh, the morality of the Bible or maybe God in parts of the Bible, or that there are just no good arguments or no evidence for the existence of God. And of course, uh, they would be persuaded that you shouldn't believe something unless you have good evidence for it. So that would be the first uh, category. The other would be people who have left because they have been uh, emotionally hurt, whether that's by people in the church who they felt have been judgmental or hypocritical, or they've had bad experiences with church leadership, or they have had what they think is a bad experience with God. And when that happens and God doesn't live up to our expectations, which actually I think is probably the the greater problem here, Uh, we there's a sense of betrayal, and um, we really expect God to come through for us. And there's this deep reciprocity principle that I think that we all operate by that says, you know, if you live for God and you're serving God, 
then there, there should be positive things that come out of that. And, and how come I've lived for God my whole life and now all these terrible things are happening to me? He's let me down. He's kind of betrayed me. And, and, and maybe he's not even there. You know, it doesn't surprise me to read your book and hear so much emotional hurt that's going on between it. I find the same thing with progressive Christians, uh, that oftentimes the pain is driving it. And you're right that it's a, a combination of the two together. And sometimes in knowing exactly what's motivating it is easier said than done. Um, one of the things I thought was fascinating about your book, and I could see your philosophical training coming through here, is you have this model of the process of deconversion, like a step-by-step model. Could you walk us through what some of those steps are? Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. The, the first step is usually going to be um, that there is, uh, you know, that someone identifies as a Christian is where they're going to start out. But from there, um, there usually is some kind of catalyst that causes them to begin to question. And I would say that a, a large uh, percentage of people who have the cat the, for the catalyst for people is is really going to be some kind of an emotional um, uh, hurt, as you just mentioned. Hmm. Because if you're happy in your community, if you feel loved, if you feel accepted, it's easy to say, you know, I'm not really sure exactly how to cash out the Trinity, and I'm not sure how I reconcile the problem of evil and a loving God. But those can be pushed to the back of your mind, and you're willing to live in the tension of that as long as you're social needs are being met, you feel loved, and you're in a community that is um, uh, beneficial for you. But as soon as that shift takes place, it opens the door to then saying, you know, I've actually even, I've really wondered about this stuff. And I got a lot of questions that I've just uh, suppressed. And, and, and the catalyst is always going to be uh, one of those two things. It's going to be, I'm presented with new information that I can't reconcile uh, intellectually with what I already believe, or I am really, I've really been hurt. And in being hurt, it's caused me to question whether or not um, this is something that I want to continue in. So that would be the first issue. I think that there would be, uh, there is a catalyst that takes place. And then after the process has begun, the the second stage would be, um, would be something along the lines of, of uh, seeking truth, right? So they say, I, I, I've come up with, with this incoherence. I, I need to find coherence in my worldview. How do I reconcile this new information with what I've believed all along about Christianity? And if that's not possible, uh, you know, after the search continues and, and there is an, an inability to bring in this these contradictory um, states of affairs or facts or beliefs that uh, a, a person has wants to hold, then uh, for the most part, you will move from being uh, a believer, perhaps to suspending your faith, becoming uh, somewhat agnostic. And then after that, um, given enough time, uh, it's possible that you will move then to the stage of becoming someone who says, I, I, I'm an atheist, or I, I'm not a Christian, at least I rejected that. And then there would be the stage where you would maybe come out and say, hey, I, I don't believe this uh, anymore and I want my community to know and I'm going to disengage from that and I'm going to renounce what I believe. So variations of that seem to be the pattern. John, when they come to the end of that process, maybe maybe before they actually come out and go public, but um, you know, when they've basically decided that you know, I, I no longer consider Christian faith plausible, um, 
that, that what what are there things that people who deconvert tend to miss about their their life of faith, um, or is it basically this sense of relief and I'm out of here, and they kind of they you know they're they're moving ahead and don't look back. Uh, which which is it? Uh, it's a little of both. A lot of um, a lot of folks would say that the impact of losing their faith has been significantly negative, because you can imagine not only has your identity shifted now, everything you had once I called yourself and identified as that's changed. So there's a sense where you may not know exactly who you are. Your community has changed because no matter how much you still want to hang around with your old Christian friends who may be the, you know, might be the extent of your community, uh, that doesn't last for, for very long if you are, um, if you've renounced the worldview that's at the center of, of their life. Uh, family relationships can be strained, especially marriages. Um, I get uh, emails occasionally from, from people who, talk, who tell me about their spouse has now uh, shifted and they say I'm no longer a Christian and, and they are. And um, it, often it ends up in, um, wow. often ends up in divorce. Mm. And there's a, so there are a lot of negative, uh, a lot of negative impacts in deconverting on a personal level. But what you might be really surprised at, and this is what really surprised me and caused me to say, this is where I think that I need to start thinking about in the future is the, almost everyone that, that I've spoken to or that the testimonies that I've read have said this. They've said, it has been difficult, it has been hard, but it has been worth it for the freedom that I've experienced because I am happier now and more liberated now than I ever was as a Christian and I wouldn't want to go back. For freedom from what specifically? Well, uh, for that, you'd have to look at the context from which a lot of people who once identified with, as, as Christians and have left, you know, what kind of Christianity did they come out of? And often you will find what I would use the term aspects of fundamentalism, where it was primarily uh, a Christian faith that was driven by lots of rule keeping, um, lots of uh, separation from the world, a critical and negative attitude towards other people. They would feel now as though they are more morally, um, they've advanced morally because they are more tolerant. They are more accepting of others. They don't have to try and see other people as those they need to evangelize and save because they're going to hell, but they look at them as more of a part of the collective humanity that we're all a part of. And it would be those kinds of things that they would say, I've left that behind, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm now free from the, one, as one person put it, I'm free from the uh, weight that had been tied around my ankle for, for so many years. I can be who I am. You just kind of hinted at this a little bit, but the relational consequences for deconverts can be great with uh, friends, with the church. But one thing that jumped out to me is you talked about how moms tend to suffer more than dads. Can you explain that a little bit? Uh, it, it seems as though um, in the people that I've interacted with and listening to their stories that uh, in, in, for some of them, the relationship that they, that they had with their father 
may not have been uh, what they had with th- their moms. The the majority mm. of people who who move in this direction, just statistically speaking, are young males, and um, it may be that they have a connection with their mom, and because of that, and uh, maybe a, a a more nurturing. Uh, endearing relationship that they have with uh, with their mother than they do maybe with their father. But I also can't help but wonder if there is a bit of an attachment issue where huh. if we don't bond and attach really well with our authoritative, our authoritative figures, spe- specifically our parents when we're young and we end up developing either um, uh, an anxious attachment uh, or a, a weak attachment, then... Um, it's it's harder for us perhaps to bond with with God, and so it may be the case that when it comes to fathers, uh, the fathers don't take it as hard because they're not as emotionally maybe invested uh, with their children that have left the faith, and because of that, that might be some sort of causal factor in in perhaps why they've left the faith. John, one it seems it would seem to me. Some of the things that people would lose as a result of deconverting would be things, things that a, a tr- any, any kind of transcendent faith would provide for someone, uh, a sense of meaning, uh, you know, a, a, an assurance about the afterlife, objective morality, uh, things like that. I mean, how, how, do, how do folks who deconvert cope with things like losing trans, uh, transcendent meaning uh, losing any anything about the afterlife and losing, you know, really a, a grounded moral sense. That reminds me of uh, when I began our discussion today, talking about Jonathan Edwards. I uh, had read a comment that he had made where he said, "Yes, uh, it has been pointed out to me that I no longer have any ultimate meaning for life, and that is a loss." However. Uh, it's not worth believing something that's untrue in order just to deceive yourself that you have a sense of meaning. And for for people who believe that they have come to see the truth here and that the truth is that God doesn't exist, um, I think that many of them would respond similar to what Jonathan Edwards has to say, is that, yes, uh, we have lost some things, but it's better to be in the truth and lose those than to be deceived and to think that um, those things are are um, available to us. John, in the book, you talk a lot about people who leave the Christian faith and become atheists and agnostics. One question I have is how many of them hold on to their faith for a while and become maybe some kind of progressive Christian for a while? And that would be things like, you know— uh, taking an affirming view on LGBTQ relationships, maybe embracing some kind of annihilationist view and rejecting hell and some kind of universalism, maybe saying the Bible's special in some sense but has errors. In other words, a way of still holding on to this Christian faith in some sense but getting rid of some of the doctrines that tend to be troubling to people who deconvert. How much was that a part of the research that you heard? You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't much that I that I did. I didn't actually come across a lot of people who had left the faith because they started down the progressive road. But this is a big concern that I do have because as as you know, Bart Campolo, son of Tony Campolo, who's now the humanist chaplain at USC last uh, I heard, uh, makes makes the claim that once you start 
what he calls sort of liberalizing your beliefs and heading in that direction, many of the examples that you just gave, you will, you will end up eventually getting rid of your faith because it's almost a, in some ways it's a, an entire piece. And when you start to pull a lot of those out, uh, it's hard to end up uh, with anything that really looks like Christianity and, or anything that's actually worth holding on to anymore. And I think when I did, you know, I did my research and I was investigating these things, the people who I had met and who I encountered were people who had left their faith, you know, years before, some of them 10 years before, some of them 15 years before. Uh, I think that what we're potentially seeing now is the idea of, of progressive Christianity being like a halfway house that for some may keep them in, in, in something that resembles the Christian faith, depending on, on how, how progressive they want to become, and, and a halfway house that's uh, you know, for people who are on their way out of the faith. And uh, one of the projects that I have in the back of my mind that I would like to work on is, is a book entitled something like A Faithful Deconstruction. Interesting. As you, as you know, deconstruction is the, is the watchword in, in the, amongst young evangelicals where they want to pull apart their faith and say, I've been handed this entire package and it's been called Christianity, but I'm not sure that it, it, the entire thing is Christianity. So let me pull apart all of the pieces and see which ones I think um, are, are, are viable and, and ones that line up with what I think. And, and then I'll rebuild my faith. And I think that everyone needs to do that at some point. We, in the past, we didn't call it deconstruction. We just said something like, we're always reforming. Um, but what I'm concerned about now is when I hear people talk about this deconstruction, they're not just taking off the shingles of the roof of, on the house of faith. Um, in some cases, they will go right down to the studs and then even start demolishing mm. the foundation. And, and rebuilding on something that's not that's not explicitly Christian. And and I think that that's going to be an increasing problem in years to come for faith retention. John, I hope you will write that book. I've had conversations with progressive Christians. I've had a few with Bart Campolo, interestingly enough. And I think there's a need for that resource, and it's only going to grow. So I'd encourage you to do it. Bart, by the way, has actually left being uh, working at USC, and he's back in Cincinnati doing his humanist ministry mm-hmm there but he was actually the person that motivated that question so you're spot on to what what i was thinking yeah well uh, listen if you ever uh if you ever want to co-author a book i'm open for, uh, uh, i'm open for a co-author i love it thanks hey john toward the end of the book you have some pretty encouraging stories of people who come full circle and come back to their faith uh why what what happens when people do that uh, what's what's the process like for that? Um, usually, what happens is, uh, if it's an emotional reason why they left, often they will find that the community that they left and the community that they went to have all of the same problems. Uh, my, my good friend uh, who at one time was working on her dissertation at a university, research level one university, and was a Christian at one point in her life, had helped uh, start a couple churches, was involved in the, the praise and worship band, and was a youth leader for uh, five or six years. She played all of those roles. Um, eventually uh, lost her faith 
she uh, was really hurt by the church that she was a part of. And um, she went on to go from there in order to make money to make over 200 adult films. Oh, my. She wrote an article called The True Family, The Church of God or the Community of Porn, Hmm. and talked about how the porn community was far more accepting and far more loving, and the the atheist community was far better than the Christian community until she had been in the secular community as a fairly well-known personality long enough and realized that the people there that she thought were so welcoming and loving were worse off than the community of Christians that she actually left. And her move back to God came through uh, a tragic experience that happened with her daughter who had flatlined because she had overdosed on heroin And uh, this woman who was a nationally known speaker for the Secular Student Alliance uh, got down on her knees and cried out to God to save her. God God saved her daughter, and she has now come back to the faith and publicly identifies on social media as a follower of Jesus again. So the the road back for some people uh, is going to be emotional and through crisis. For others... If it's uh, a theological or a doctrinal or an intellectual issue, often the return will be to a Christian faith that perhaps looks a little bit different than the one that they left. Um, For example, one guy in the book I talked about came from a a background that was shallow in theology and high on experience. And he thought as he kind of came to age that there was nothing here. It was so shallow and, and, and vapid and uh, left the faith, and then eventually came across Reformed theology and found the intellectual side of Christianity, uh, that there was something really there to believe in. And he came back to faith, but it didn't look like the faith that he left. And I think that there is certainly room for that. The question is how much room and, and and, and what kind of faith are you coming back to? Because as we said earlier, versions of, of uh, what we would call, uh, for lack of a better term, progressive Christianity um, are, 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 in my opinion, are, depending on how you define it, um, start to look like something other than perhaps a, a legitimate version of Christianity to return to. John, a final question for you that's really the, the final kind of section of your book where you talk about practical takeaways for the church. And I was reading those just going, in my mind, amen, amen, because it matches my experience and so much of the research that I've done and just conversations I've had with people who have deconverted. Give us maybe two or three of the big points that you unpack of practical things we could do better to try to minimize the bleeding of people out of the church and the faith. Uh, yeah, thanks. That's a, I think that's a really important question. Um, I would say that there are, there's, a, there's two different ways that I think that we need to go about doing this. And, and what I'm going to call uh, avoiding, the other will be averting. I think we want to avoid setting up folks for a crisis of faith. And I think we want to try and avert folks from reaching the end of that journey, right? So there might be people who are heading down that road, and there are some things that maybe we can do to help avert that. When I think of avoiding, I think of uh, inoculating young people with information that they need to hear from Christian sources that they will inevitably encounter on the internet from non-Christian hostile sources. You know, when you and I were coming up and we were young in our teens and interested in uh, apologetics, 
uh, there were apologetic ministries, there were apologetic radio programs, Christian publishing houses, you name it. It was easy to access. But there was never any counter-apologetic ministry out there except for maybe a couple atheist publishing houses like Prometheus. But yep. now the internet has uh, made that a very level playing field. Your dad has uh, spoken, I think, quite eloquently uh, about the impact that the internet has. And and things that no one ever would encounter unless they were in seminary and getting exposed to the composition of the Bible and the process of canonicity and textual transmission now are being presented in a, in a, in a way and in, in, in a format that is really unhelpful and can cause a tremendous amount of doubt and, and damage to a, a young person's faith. So what I think we need to do is we need to start addressing some of the issues that um, that if they were to come across them um, from another source could cause them problems. And I think the, the, the most important one is, is what exactly is the Bible? What does inspiration mean? What does inerrancy mean? It doesn't mean that if there is two different accounts of the same event that it's necessarily an error. And so I think we need to take the lead and expose young people to some of these because they're going to get exposed to them anyway. So that would be the first thing apart as far as avoiding goes. The, the second thing as far as avoiding goes is that we need to make sure that the faith that we're passing on is a faith that is not a bloated, fragile, inflexible house of cards. Now, I, I really respect and I really believe that as a follower of Jesus, that he's the Lord and that his word is, is true and that we submit to it. And that means if we come across something in his word that we believe is true, then we are obligated to to follow it. Uh, But sometimes that message that gets passed on is, well, you need to follow what the Bible has to say if you're really a follower of Jesus and want to be a genuine Christian. And here I'm going to tell you and give you what the Bible has to say. And instead of giving them the core essentials of what it means to be a Christian, uh, we sometimes pass on a bloated um, interpretation or spin or take of what that is. And I had a good friend last night who, who Facebooked me and said, hey, I saw your new book come out. I just want you to know I was one of those people who almost walked away from the faith wow. because I was somebody who was told this is Christianity. And if you believe, if you don't believe at all, then you don't believe any of it. God. And if you pull Ouch. out one, if you pull out one card from a house of cards, the whole thing collapses. Man. And and they said, you know, I I felt like I had to believe in, and you know, you list off all of the things that, while legitimate theological positions for a person to hold, are perhaps not legitimate to pat to force on someone else in order to be a, a follower of Jesus. So I think we want to go deep on core issues. Um, and I think that we want to be careful that we're not burdening folks with things that they don't have to hold on to in order to be a Christian. So that would be um, how I think that we can um, uh, uh, avoid one, a couple of the ways we can avoid setting up people for a crisis of faith. John, this has been a super helpful discussion. I, I hope I hope our listeners have found this to be an, an arresting one too, uh, maybe to get your attention about things that you hadn't thought much about before. Uh, and particularly your advice about preparing the next generation of students and young adults uh, with the kinds of things that they're going to encounter on the Internet, uh, I think is such a helpful bit of advice to get out in front of those things and anticipate those. 
And for our listeners, if you're not if you're not familiar with the book, we highly recommend to you, John, Dr. John Marriott, The Anatomy of Deconversion. Uh, it's, it's it's so helpful, so insightful. Uh, and John, it, it's been it's been rich to have you on this with us. We so appreciate the 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 hard work that you've done, the deep research that you've done into this. And uh, our prayers go out for the book that it gets a super wide reading, and that people in the church, particularly people in leadership in the church, take these things seriously, so that we can avoid and avert. Uh, and as Sean put it, to sort of stop the bleeding. Uh, from the church and from the faith. So, John, so delighted to have you with us. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, My pleasure. Thank you very much. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Master's in Christian Apologetics, which is now offered fully online. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.